Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. We're going to keep going in Romans now, and this chapter and the next one. Today we're going to do Romans 7, and next week I'll do Romans 8. Uh, probably two of my favorite uh, chapters in the entire Bible. And I really think, as I was praying, I was praying for you guys this morning, and uh, I, just, I just feel, if you can get to the last, last part of the message, I've got to get through some theological stuff at the beginning, which is important. We've got to lay a foundation. Uh, but the last half of this chapter, the whole part about I can't do what I want to do, and I do do what I don't want to do, I think Paul just has such a, such a wonderful, there's an empathy there, and there's such a wonderful truth about how to view your struggles that I, I can just hardly wait to get there, and I think it's going to really encourage you. But let's just read. We're just going to read the first six verses. We're going to get through the whole chapter, and then the message won't be finished, obviously, because chapter 8 just flows uh, right along with chapter 7. But uh, we'll just save that for uh, next week, obviously. But I'll just read the first six verses here to you, and then, uh, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get in, into this. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church family. Thank you for these new members we got to take into our family today. And uh, another bunch in the next service again. Jesus, I, I just feel so lucky to get to work here. And uh, we feel so blessed. The love that we see in this church, the, the desire to serve, the desire to love, and how you're working and changing our lives and setting us free. I thank you for all of it, Jesus. And I just pray now as we sit together and go through Romans 7, Holy Spirit, would you touch us afresh? Would you encourage us? Would you change us and draw us into yourself? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So you might be wondering after the first six verses how this is going to be an encouragement for you. Uh, there are certainly part, portions of, Ro of Romans that seem a bit dense, and that's okay. My job is to hopefully make this a little less dense and then get to the, to the encouraging part. But this is a tricky passage, and a, and a lot of Christian teachers and authors and writers over the years have taken this passage to some extreme places and some unbalanced places, and we just have to clear up some of that so we understand because I know you're listening on the radio or you're reading a book, there's certain interpretations of this passage that you're going to read or you're going to hear. Then you're going to be reading Romans in your devotions, and it's going to mess you up a little bit, and it has huge implications for how we live. So this first part, we, we're just going to clear that up. And it's some stuff we've talked about here before, but the reason is because of, of a couple of statements here in this first six verses that Paul makes about the law that seem really extreme, and how do we actually apply them to our lives. And so uh, if you just want to underline those up there, Sarah, if, if, if you could, that's great. But he says there, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Later he says, we have been released from the law. And so uh, over the years, a number of 
teachers and authors have taken, in fact, the whole kind of theological system has sprung up based on, on this passage that we as believers, once we give our lives to Christ, we're released from the law in the sense that the commandments no longer apply to us. We no longer uh, need to, to obey them. And, uh, and again, Paul seems, here in these first six verses, he does seem quite negative about the law. He even says there, uh, if you go verse 6 there, he says, he talks about the law even holding us captive. So it just seems very negative. It seems like the law is a bad thing for a Christian. It seems like the commandments are something that will hurt you. And so based on this, this, this theological system has sprung up. It's taught in many places. And, but a number of things come out of it, and I've, and I've actually heard preachers teach this, uh, some very famous popular ones, but they'll teach that based on this passage, there's no need in the Christian life anymore uh, for repentance, okay? I actually heard a pastor say once, uh, uh, again, a very famous one, uh, and teaches a lot of good stuff too. I'm not saying these, these aren't actually all bad guys, but just he, he actually taught it's of the flesh because we're no longer under the law. He said a Christian no longer needs to say sorry or confess when you break the law because we're not under the law, we're released from the law. And in fact, he said that it's actually of the flesh you're actually under death. You're not under, under Christ. If you confess your sins and repent of them, you're actually doing something wrong. You're actually hurting yourself. Uh, so they'll say that there's no repentance. Based on this, if we're not under the law, we don't need to confess our sins. We don't need to repent. There'd be no need for a set-free retreat or any of that if we're released from the law because we don't have to obey those commands anyway. They don't apply to us. Uh, again, this is quite a popular teaching now. Another teaching that comes out of this is the idea that the Christian life no longer requires any kind of moral effort. That the Christian life no longer requires any moral effort. And so what goes along with this theological system is if we've been released from the law and if we're actually dead to the law, we no longer need to try to obey the commands. We no longer need to actually try to be good. What we just need to do is walk by the Spirit, and amen, we do need to walk by the Spirit. But what, we, but what they do is they take walking with the Spirit as being, you know, the exclusive, mutually exclusive from putting any effort into being good. But they say since we've been released from the law, we've been released from the commandments, we've actually died to those things, we no longer want to put any human effort into trying to be good. Any human effort into trying not to be bad, they will actually say that that's the flesh. If you put any human effort into it, that's of the flesh. It's not going to work. It's just going to hurt you. What you need to do is just realize Jesus did all the work on the cross. And if you just realize it, the more you can realize it, good stuff will automatically come out of you by the Spirit. You won't have to try. So based on passages like this, or this passage primarily, also one in Galatians, um, they take Paul to say, no repentance, no effort. Now, the thing we have to realize, though, and, and the reason I wanted to do this again, and we've talked about some of these themes before, uh, but it's so important as we're teaching to, to help you guys understand how to understand the Bible. When you want to build a theology for life and how we live, we don't build it off of just one passage in Scripture. If we only had this one passage of Scripture, um, we wouldn't, you know, maybe that would be the right interpretation. What these guys are teaching, maybe that would be the right thing. But the fact is we have the rest of the Bible, and we, when we pull in the rest of the Bible, we find that that kind of a teaching is explicitly false. And so I just want to show you a few verses here. Uh, is it biblical that to be released from the law means I no longer need to put any moral effort into my life? I no longer need to put any effort into overcoming sin. I no longer need to put any effort into growing in goodness. Well, I just want to show you a few verses, and I could show you so many on this topic, but I'm just going to show you a couple Let's start with 2 Timothy 2, 
21 to 22, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, and that already cleanses is an action word, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, so flee youthful passions. That's an, that's an action word, okay? Uh, the Greek word there for flee means to flee, to run away, okay? That's what it means. It actually takes effort. I don't just, Jesus did it for me all on the cross, and if I just rest in that, if I put in any effort, that's the flesh. No, no, I have to flee. I have to do something. There are certain people. There are certain situations. There are certain pleasures I used to enjoy, and I still really want to do them, but I actually can't do them anymore because they lead me to a bad place. So I need to flee those things. I need to, I need to, to grit my teeth sometimes and bear down and get a hard grip and, and, and push off and push away and move away. And sometimes that will be painful. And sometimes the sweat will pour down my face, but I have to flee from those things. That's actually part of participating with the Spirit. This is not mutually exclusive. That walking with the Spirit is not mutually exclusive from human effort. Clearly, we don't want to just live our whole lives off of human effort without the Spirit. But the idea of relying on the Spirit is not mutually exclusive from me also exerting human effort. I want to exert human effort in the Spirit. And then he continues on. He says, and pursue righteousness. Pursue. And the Greek word there, dioko, actually means to run swiftly, to press on, and to earnestly endeavor. Earnestly endeavor actually has the idea of persevering. That actually to grow in character, pursue righteousness. That's what he says. That actually... The fruit of the Spirit will not just happen automatically in your life. Does the Spirit have to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Yes. Absolutely. You can't produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But the fact that the Holy Spirit has to produce the fruit of the Spirit in you doesn't mean that you don't have to participate with Him by giving Him your best efforts. That's actually part of your act of worship to Him. And as I give him my best efforts, I depend on him, and he responds to that, and he does the work in me. But Paul says, I have to pursue. This idea that I'm released from the law, that I'm dead to the law, does not mean I no longer need to pay attention to the moral demands of Scripture, or that those things will happen automatically in me. Pursue and flee means that there will be times in the Christian life when I'm hanging on by a fingernail, when I'm exerting maximum force as much as I can, and I don't know if I can do any more, but that there will be times in my life when I will have to struggle like that in order to grow and in order to resist evil. Pursue righteousness, earnestly endeavor, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And again, there's many passages like this. Let me just show you a couple more. 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 11. So this is Paul again to Timothy. Uh, just in another letter. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness. So we see it again. This is actually a common theme in Paul's uh, teaching to Timothy. It's again and again. You must flee and you must pursue. You must flee and you must pursue. You have to actually do something. Then there's Hebrews chapter 12, 14 to 16. And the author of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. I mean, strive, and the word, the Greek word there for strive is the same one that Paul uses for pursue in First uh, and Second Timothy. It's diokos. Strive, it means to earnestly endeavor. I actually have to earnestly endeavor. I have to fight for peace with people. I also have to fight for holiness in my life. I have to fight, strive, earnest endeavor, push forward. 
Now, before we continue on, I just want to pause you for just a moment before we even go back to Romans. And uh, I just wanted to say something here. And, I, and I, I really want to encourage you that these passages that the Christian life is supposed to have struggle should be a huge encouragement to us. Because I think that sometimes we as Christians, and this is one of the things I really want the Holy Spirit to drive deep in your hearts to get it, not just here, but here today is that I think a lot of us as Christians, when certain temptations don't go away, and yes, as we walk with Jesus, we do find, we do find freedom and like set free and all this sort of stuff as we walk with him. There is, there is a, a lot of deliverance in the Christian life, which is just amazing and awesome. But the fact of the matter is that our Christian life will often have struggle and there will be things that persist in our lives, temptations, desires, habits that are very difficult to shake. And sometimes we as Christians get bogged down by hopelessness and the devil is attacking us with condemnation and we think, you know, the fact that I still struggle with this shows that God is not at work in my life or shows that I'm a bad person or shows that I'm not full of the Holy Spirit or whatever and we get discouraged. What's the matter with me? But what these verses actually show us is a big part of the Christian life is struggle. You're not alone, you're not bad, and God's not mad at you because you struggle. In fact, I want to show you Philippians chapter 2, 12 to 13, a radically new perspective for struggle. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to notice, work out. Again, the idea that the Christian life is automatic, that I just rest in Jesus, he does it all. Paul says, your salvation actually needs to be worked out with fear and trembling, with effort, with stress sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to overcome these things. But now I want you to see this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the thing you need to understand is that sometimes we look at our lives and see this sinful habit isn't gone yet. Or, you know, you're a, you're a parent and you've got young kids and, and you know, you have this ideal. I'm going to always be patient with my kids, always, right? And before you have any kids, this is the ideal, right? And uh, I'm, I'm just going to always love them. And you read, you know, when you're pregnant and you read these books and how you're going to love them and cherish them always and do all these wonderful things for them. And then you have one or two or three or four and, and by the time you get down to two or three or four, there's not always love and cherishing there happening, right? And you have days, and so you go, and then you get mad at yourself. You're lying in bed at night, and how did I get mad again? Like, why did I lose my temper again? Why was I impatient again? And you start to berate yourself. Like, what's wrong with me? Clearly, spiritually, something is wrong with me. God's not working in my life, obviously. We're seeing it all wrong. We view the fact that we haven't overcome the struggle yet as evidence that God's not at work. But what Paul says here is it's God who works in me to will and to work, which means that the fact that I'm struggling is evidence that God's at work. See, the fact that I, don't, the fact that I hate my sin is already evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. The fact that I want to change, the fact that I struggle against this thing and pray to him and call out to him, I might not have overcome the struggle yet, but the fact that I am struggling is proof that God's at work in me because it's him that has to work in order to make me will and to work in that way. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Well, we'll come back to it anyway in just a bit. Now, of course, I just want to give a quick caveat here. 
I'm not trying to paint a picture here, an overly gloomy picture, that the entire Christian life is only about struggle. The Christian life is about Jesus. We don't, we don't get saved because we love struggle. We get saved because we love Jesus. And so the reason we struggle and the thing that motivates us to struggle is because we, we love Jesus. We want to walk with him. And the more I experience him and love him and know him, the more motivated I am to do whatever it takes to please him. So again, though, and so much of the Christian life is about relationship. It's about love. It's about hearing Jesus. It's about experiencing him. But why I talk about this is, in your pursuit of Jesus, don't be disillusioned by the presence of struggle. Yes, it's about Jesus, but there is a huge element in following Jesus that is also about struggle. Struggle with the things inside of me that don't want to change. So anyway, we go back to Romans 7. Died to the law and released from the law does not mean we don't need to repent, confess our sins. It doesn't mean that there's no longer any moral effort. When we read the law and it says, do not lust, do not commit adultery, there may be effort involved in that. We need to exert that effort in the Spirit, asking for His help, but we need to exert that effort. It also doesn't mean that we don't need to obey the commands at all. I'm just going to throw up John, just one passage up there. John, 1 John chapter 5 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Doesn't this look almost exactly opposite to Romans 7? Romans 7, you've been released. And this is, again, this is the problem with, with preachers and teachers and authors when they, when they build a whole theology on one passage and ignore everything else. You can't interpret Romans 7 in such a way that it contradicts 1 John chapter 5. And by the way, 1 John 5 isn't just one passage. There's a whole bunch of other ones just like this. In fact, John, the, the apostle John, had, a, had quite a love for obeying uh, God's commandments. But verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And I want you to notice the last sentence there, and his commandments are not burdensome. So in Romans 7, it sort of feels like the law is this burden, doesn't it? It's like we were held captive. We've been released from it. We've got to die to it. It sort of feels like the law was a bad thing, and now I don't need to obey it anymore. Then you look at 1 John, and John says, you want to know how you love God? You love God by obeying his commandments. And by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. When you're walking with Jesus... Loving your neighbor as yourself is actually life. It might sometimes take effort, but it's life. It's, they're not burdensome. They're wonderful. So what on earth is Paul saying in Romans 7? That's the thing, right? And if we can figure out what he's actually saying, then we're going to get to a place where it's actually encouraging. Rather than just building frivolously and carelessly a doctrine that doesn't actually fit with the Scriptures. So what is Paul actually saying? Well, I believe, and I don't have lots of time to develop this fully, I wrote a whole paper on this, though, for those of you who want to explore it more. But what I believe is that in Romans 7, Paul is not talking about the law itself. He's not talking about being released from the law and dying to the law in terms of the commandments, that we no longer need to obey them. What he's talking about is we need to die to a particular uh, perspective of the law, a particular abuse and misuse of the law. And I'm just going to show you a little context here. If we go back to verse 1, just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 7, throughout the book of Romans, Paul is, he'll, he'll speak to different groups of people, but he always makes it clear who he's speaking to. So sometimes he'll be speaking primarily to Gentile Christians. Sometimes he'll be speaking to Jewish people. Sometimes he'll be speaking specifically 
to Jewish Christians, but he always makes it clear in the chapter who he's speaking to. Now, I want you to notice here at the beginning of chapter 7, he says this, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. I am speaking to those who know the law. Who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to his fellow Jews. Okay? Now, why is that important? Well, the thing you have to remember is the Jews had a very different perspective of the law than you and I do. Okay? The Jewish people in New Testament times in particular, and if you want to you see this in action, just read the Gospels and read about the Pharisees. But the Jews in New Testament times had their, their entire society, their entire culture was centered on the law. Okay? And so from birth, from, from birth, you were steeped in the law. The law was everything. The law governed every aspect of life. It, it, it governed how, like, exactly what you could and couldn't do on a Sabbath, on a Saturday. It, it governed you know, when you celebrated certain things and how you celebrated them. It governed what you ate and how you ate it and how you cooked it. Their entire life was centered around the law. Now, in some ways, that was good. But what had happened in their culture was it, the law had actually been exalted to a place where it actually become idolatry. It had taken the place of the lawgiver which is exactly what we actually see in the Gospels. These people who so loved the law, when Jesus came, the very one who wrote the law with his fingers in stone in the Ten Commandments, he was the lawgiver. He came, they were so obsessed with the law that they rejected the one who gave them the law. The law had taken the place of God, and that's why Jesus rebuked them so sternly. And the law had gone from being what the law was supposed to do, was it was supposed to show people what is good. And it was, what it should have done is people should have looked at that and said, this is what it means to be good. This is what God's character is like. They should have seen, this is how far short we follow this. It should have humbled them. They should have run to God for help. That's what it should have done. But instead of that, it had been twisted into something, instead of something that humbles you and pushes you towards God, it had been twisted into something that puffed them up. And so the Pharisees used the law not as a thing to say, I need God. Look at how good God is. I want to be like him and I have to push, to push into him for his help. Instead, it had become this thing, look how bad you are at obeying the law, and look at how good I am. And it had, instead of being a humbling thing, it had been a proud thing. And they thought that they could earn God's favor. They thought they could earn salvation on their own goodness, on their own ability to obey the law. And so it had become a poisonous thing. Actually, in their hands, the law had gone from being a good thing to being a poisonous thing. And so Paul says to them, and so they just talked about the law. Their whole life was the law. And so in Romans 7, Paul rebukes them, speaking to this Jewish abuse to make the law in the place of God, to think that you can use the law to earn your salvation with God. Ridiculous. Nobody can do that on their own effort. We're sinful through and through. And so Paul says, you cannot give your life to Christ and have that kind of a relationship to the law at the same time. Those two things will not go hand in hand. And so he says to his, his Jewish brethren, you must die to the law. You are released from that kind of a life, which in many ways was burdensome. They had come with all, up with all kinds of extra commands to go along with the commands in Scripture. And so dead to the law just means dead to use and misuse of the law. And I'm going to show you. We're going to just keep going now in Romans 7. And you're going to see this because what Paul is going to do next, okay, so dead to the law equals trying to earn favor with God and salvation through the law. If we go to verse 7, I'm going to show you now that Paul is not upset with the law itself. It was an abuse of the law. And so what Paul is going to do now, because he just said, 
you got to die to the law, you got to be released to the law, but he's talking about abuse. But he knows he's been burned enough times. And those of you who have ever pre- preached or teached or wrote something down, you know that someone will come along somewhere and hear a message or read something you've written and take it out of context. And Paul knows that's going to happen. So in verse 7, he says, now I have to show you that I'm not against the law. And so he now tackles the opposite extreme, which is people who now want to throw out the law. And he says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin? So he says, you know, is the law the problem? Like I just told you, you've got to be released, you've got to die to it, but really I'm talking about an abuse there. Is the law itself the problem? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So the law is a good thing because it tells me what is, what is right and what is wrong. And that's actually good for me because sin, if I, don't, if I don't know what sin is, it still hurts me. Like if I don't know that coveting is a sin, but I covet, it's still going to hurt me. Coveting is not good for me. I might not know that adultery is a sin, but if I commit adultery, that's like po- it's like drinking poison. So, so when the law comes along, the law labels poison, poison. It says, don't do these things. They're against God's will. They're going to bring judgment and they're bad for you. That's a good thing. Okay? That's a really good thing. Okay? Now the problem is the law labels for us what is poison, but we keep drinking it. Isn't that the problem, right? Because that's what we're going to see next. But sin. So the problem is not the law. The law just shows me what is bad and what is good. And then Paul goes on next, and he tackles this whole problem of, so the law is good, and the law shows me what is right and wrong. But I still sin. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So here's the deal. Before God gave the law, someone might have argued, the only reason we sin is because we're ignorant. The only reason we do wrong is because we don't know what right is. Okay? So God gives us the law, and then we continue to sin. And the reason is because we don't sin because of ignorance. We sin because there is literally a power inside of us called sin. This sinful nature that is bent on sin, that wants sin. It's literally a power, a force that is at work within us. And so when the law came, people might think, okay, now that I know right and wrong, I can do right and not do wrong. But now we can see it. So the law came and showed me the problem, but the law doesn't solve the problem. I want you to notice the one line up there. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That's a very interesting statement. What is he talking about there? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Well, I just, just to use an example, um, and, and those of you who are suffering with this, I'm not, I want you to know my heart goes out to you. This is just purely an analogy, and I don't want to make light of, of what you're suffering with, but um, a person who has cancer, okay? And again, my heart goes out to you, those of you who, who struggle with this even right now. I'm just using this as an analogy. But anyway, um, a person who has cancer, for the first while that they have cancer, they don't know that they have cancer, right? But you don't know until you get diagnosed or until some symptoms come up. Isn't that true? So you're going through life 
and you don't know. You're just going through life kind of happy-go-lucky, your usual self, not thinking about the future, not whatever. You're just going day-to-day and enjoying life. And then one day you have some weird symptoms or something, you go to a doctor, and the doctor takes you and does some tests, and it comes back that you have cancer. Now, when the doctor does those tests, and the results come back, the tests, like maybe he does an MRI or something, let's say. The MRI is not the thing that gave you the cancer, is it? The MRI just shows you something that was already there. Isn't that true? But the thing is, getting the results changes your life, doesn't it? See, you had cancer before that you got the test, you know, the MRI or whatever. You had it before, you have it after. So nothing's changed from just getting a result. Nothing has changed in reality in terms of what's happening in your body, but something has changed in your mind, hasn't it? Before, you were just going along life and happy and everything else. And then after now, you are in for this struggle, right? Things change. There might be stress, there might be anxiety, there might be whatever, uh, you know, an earnestness in prayer, whatever it is. But they, in the same way, Paul says, you know, before the law, I just was going about my life. In fact, I kind of enjoyed my sins, right? There's a, there's a certain pleasure that comes from sin. It's not, a, it's not the best kind of pleasure. It's a fleeting pleasure. It's a pleasure that often ends up the, in, in remorse and pain and all that kind of stuff. But there's a certain pleasure, a, sh- a season of pleasure that comes with sin. Before the law, before you realize that there's God and there is right and wrong, you kind of enjoy those sins. And then you meet the law. So I was once alive apart from the law. I had a life. I had no idea there was a hell, no idea there was a judgment. I just enjoyed myself, sexual immorality, whatever. I just was having fun. And then the law came along and told me, I'm on my way to hell, and you should be ashamed of these things that you're having fun with. And suddenly I couldn't enjoy them anymore. The law came along and I died. That's the sense. The law didn't hurt him. The law showed him the cancer that was at work inside of him. He no longer could enjoy his life. By the way, you know, there's different kinds of Christians. You know, a person who is completely away from the Lord and doesn't believe in Jesus, they can kind of, they have a certain amount of happiness in this life from pursuing sin. Then you have someone who is fully devoted to the Lord and going all out, and they have a tremendous joy in following him and listening to him. And then you have the Christian in the middle, the lukewarm Christian, who, uh, they, they're a believer, they're not this guy over here, but they haven't fully committed their life over here. They kind of still want to enjoy the pleasures of sin and worldliness. This is the most unhappy person right here because of this principle. Because they can't, they, they want to hold on to the sin, but they can't enjoy it anymore. Oh! I'm stuck! I either have to go all out or I have to not believe, and I don't want to go to either extreme. I'm stuck in the middle and I can't be happy. So the law came and I died, right? But again, the problem is not the law, the problem is with sin. When you get a cancer diagnosis, if you, you know, the MRI comes in and says you have cancer, you don't get up and start beating the MRI machine and saying, you terrible MRI machine, do you? The law is not the problem. The law shows me my problem. The law shows me this power of sin, this sick, shameful thing at work inside of me that makes me do bad things and not love and not do good things. So the law is not the problem. The power of sin in my life is the problem. The problem is sin. The law shows us the problem. But again... The law isn't the solution either. The MRI machine doesn't fix your cancer, does it? It'll show you your cancer, but it doesn't fix your cancer. It can't fix your cancer. 
any more than an x-ray. An x-ray can show you a broken bone, but it can't fix your broken bone. You know, you go into the doctor's office every day to get an x-ray to fix your broken bone. That doesn't make any sense. That's just for looking at your bone. Same with the law. The law shows you your sin, but the law doesn't fix it. This is where the Jewish people went wrong. They took the law as the solution, too. They thought, now we have the solution. We just obey this. We're going to be right with God. They didn't realize is, even if you can make your outsides good, you can never make your insides good. Not by your own human effort. Well, this problem of sin, this problem of struggling with things we don't want to do and not doing things we should do, it continues after we become Christians, too. And this is where we get into reality. You know, we've talked a lot about justification and propitiation and all that in this series so far. And now we get into the reality of how we actually live, right? And we know that in our lives, so Jesus came to fix the sin problem, but I'm still struggling. And so Paul talks about that next, verse 15. For I do not understand. Did I read verses 12 to 14? Ah, you guys go back. I'm going to run out of time anyway. So you just go back and read it. We'll, we'll go to 15. It's good. It just all applies to the stuff I was talking about. I should have just read the Bible and you would have seen it. Anyway, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, how many of you can relate to that? That's why I said I wanted to get to the, sec- the, the last part of this, ch- this chapter. Because, boy, I get that, okay? You and I, we get that. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. I, I agree with the MRI machine that I have a problem. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. I do, and you do too, right? We give our lives to Christ, and we have the desire, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And now Paul is going to explain for us why that is. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Isn't that true? So I, after you give your life to Jesus... The Holy Spirit comes to reside in your spirit and there is a part of you that instantly wants to do right. That's where part of the torment comes. We, we can see, I can see the kind of husband I want to be. Isn't that true? I can see the kind of wife I want to be. I can see the kind of person I want to be. I want to be pure. We sing worship songs, you know, like today, just spectacular. And it's in those times of worship and your spirit is alive. And I often just find myself calling out to God and I, I just want to be everything for him. I just, I just want to give him my whole life. I want to live all out. I don't want to be worldly. I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to be impure. I don't want to be lustful, right? There's a part of us that just delights in the law of God in our inner beings the moment we give our lives to Christ. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. So I come to worship on a Sunday morning and I lift my hands and I desire to be all the person Jesus has called me to be. And then I get up Monday morning, right? Oh, and I don't feel like it. 
I don't feel like praying. And sometimes I can force myself to do it for a few days in a row, but I don't feel like being patient. And sometimes I can do it for a couple of days in a row, but eventually I just wear down because my flesh, it's just, I don't want to. I want to, but I don't want to. And there's, it's in the very members of my body. There's war being raged between what I want to be and what I'm not. We are divided people, flesh and spirit. My flesh is enslaved to sin, but my spirit is alive to God. One part of me wants to live at this next level, holiness, purity, goodness, godliness, but my flesh is weak. I get tired. I get grumpy. I give in to temptation. And day to day, it just seems sometimes that we can't get there. And so Paul says, wretched man that I am. And I read this in my devotions and I go, woohoo! I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. So, where is the hope in this story? Unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story. If we keep reading, Paul has some really good news for us, and that's where we're going to end. And that'll continue in the next week, because I can't even begin to touch, because chapter 8 is the good news coming out of chapter 7. So I'm only going to touch on one little thing now to end this message. But Paul goes on to say, and he says this, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's hope. Jesus is going to deliver us. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Wait a minute, Paul. <laughs> Take that last part out. I thought you just said God, Jesus is going to deliver us from the body of death. But then he says, but I'm still serving the law of God. He still has a battle inside of him. What's going on here? Thank you, Jesus, for delivering me, and I still have a battle going on inside. Two things I want you to notice about this. First of all, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? First thing you need to understand is that our hope is based on something that is coming in the future. Now, I'll get to the present. It's not only in the future. The future bleeds into the present. But if you're going to get anything out of this message, you need to understand the foundation and the New Testament, New Testament Christianity had hung their hook on the resurrection. They weren't living for now. They were living for the future. And so the first thing I need you to know is that this is speaking of the resurrection. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This body I'm living in is a body of death. It's going to die. It gets sick. And my Adam nature, I gave my life to Jesus. My spirit was immediately renewed, but I don't have my resurrection body yet, so I am still in a body that is stained by sin and death. So that's why there's a war right now still going on. Someday in the future, though, this is the hope. This is the hope. Someday in the future, and it's not that far away. I mean, regardless of whether it's 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, it's not far away because in the grand scheme of eternity, even 50 years isn't that long. In the grand scheme of eternity, 50 years is like this. And we need, to be more, we need to become more and more aware of that. But the day is coming when you're going to get a resurrected body that is not stained by a sin nature. No more temptation. In that day, you will be made new. You will be made in Christ's likeness, not in terms of being a God, but in terms of his likeness, in terms of your character and your heart. And you will be amazed at yourself. Your highest hopes and dreams for yourself in this life for what kind of a person you would like to be will be more than realized on the day you get your resurrected body. You will be amazing in Christ. Amazing. Now you say, well, how does that affect me today? Well, future hope bleeds into the present. See, because here's what the devil is telling many of you, if not all of you, because I get it too. 
He points out that one thing. He points out that set one issue or two issues or three issues, those areas of your character. I just can't get it together. I just can't get it together. And he hammers you. Are you even saved? He just hammers you. Are you even saved? What's the matter with you? You can't get over this. You start to think, I'm hopeless. I'm useless. I'll never get over this. I'll never be over this. And what the devil doesn't want you to remember is there is a day coming and it's much closer than he likes. But there is a day coming and it is assured when you will be delivered of it. That actually sets you free to struggle now. Because you actually now are struggling not out of a place of hopelessness. We struggle and it's like you want to give up, right? What's the thing in a... Those of you who have run a long distance race, I like... I don't know if I always like it. I like it at the end. But if you've ever done a long distance race, the thing that keeps you going is the finish line. That's what keeps you going. If someone just said, I want you to run as fast as you can indefinitely. <laughs> huh. That's crazy. But if you know there's a finish line, it's the finish line that motivates me to push when my body wants to slow down. It's the finish line that makes me want to give that burst when I feel like I can't give anymore. It's the finish line. When, you, when the resurrection becomes more than a theory, when it becomes a reality in your life like the New Testament writers want it to for us, now you realize in the midst of that struggle, you say, but I've had the same struggle for 5, 10, 15 years. Remember again that in the scheme of eternity, you say, I just want to give up. I talk to people who actually get mad at God because their temptations haven't been taken away. Well, why hasn't God taken this temptation away? He is going to take it away. And 10 million years from now, that 20 years you struggled with it will seem like this. You'll look back on it 10 million years from now and it'll be like, he took it away immediately. But right now it just doesn't feel immediate because we have the wrong perspective. Amen. We have the wrong perspective. You are going to win. You just need to persevere to the end. And that's why you continue to struggle because it isn't hopeless. You are assured of victory and all you have to do is not quit. That's all you have to do is not quit. If we anchor ourselves in this hope, it changes everything now. Well, that brings us to the second thing, along with that future bleeding into the present. Verse 1 of chapter 8, and we'll do the rest of chapter 8 next week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an unbelievable statement. Jesus knows that he is about to deliver you. He knows the resurrection is coming. He knows you've given your life to him. And he knows that he is about to deliver you from this body of death that you can't stand. He also knows he hasn't done it yet. Think about that for a moment. He knows he is about to deliver you. And he knows he hasn't done it yet. Which means that he does not harbor even an ounce of condemnation for you in the now. He doesn't harbor an ounce of condemnation for you in the now, in the struggle. He knows you're going to struggle. He knows you're weak. He hasn't finished the work yet. So now when you struggle, listen to this. We get discouraged. I'm struggling. I'm not seeing results. You know what Jesus takes those struggles as? Your act of worship to him. He sees you fall down for the hundredth time and get up and say, Jesus, I love you. 
and it hurts me so bad. I just, I have this problem, and it's such a deep struggle. It just hurts me so bad, and I want to give in so bad, but I'm going to press on to you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to confess. I'm going to do all the right thing. I'm going to get accountable. I'm going to get people around me. I'm going to do all those things as part of my struggle not to give in, not to quit. And Jesus says, and we're thinking, he must be mad at me because I keep screwing up. And he says, I'm not mad at you. That is your spiritual act of worship that you keep getting up and struggling. See, God hasn't promised to set you and me free from struggle in this lifetime. Rather, with these truths, and this is where Paul's truth here is so radical. He hasn't promised to set us free from struggle, but what these truths do is they set us free to struggle. Because now I have nothing to lose. He's not mad at me. It's the difference between the dad who all he can see is what you're doing wrong, 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 and you don't want to try anything because you're so afraid of making a mistake. And the dad who says, I love you so much, (laughs) anything you try that you try for me is a victory. And you just say, I want to do anything for that dad. In the same way, we are set free. We are set free to just go at it for him, to just struggle, to do, to go all out and say, I'm going to struggle on this to the end because I'm going for the finish line and I'm not going to quit and everything I do is an act of worship to you. And you know the amazing thing is, and I mean we talk about the set free and all this sort of stuff, this amazing stuff is, once you let loose like that over time, the power of the Spirit will transform you powerfully. But don't be disillusioned with the fact that you struggle. I want to finish with a quote from C.S. Lewis and I want to pray for you and I'm going to worship. You and I are no longer struggling out of hopelessness and condemnation. We are struggling out of hope and love. C.S. Lewis said this, but if you are a poor creature, I'll get it up there, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Amen? Keep on. Do what you can. One day, he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one, and then you may astonish us all, not least yourself. I want to pray for you. In fact, I want you to stand. I just want to pray for you, and I want the Holy Spirit to touch you and give you hope. So let's close our eyes. And let's bring our struggles. I want you to think even right now as I begin to pray. What is a character issue that you've been struggling with and feeling hopeless about? Maybe you have a sinful habit, a nagging, harassing habit. Maybe you're just trudging through life under a heavy cloud of condemnation. I want you in your mind to bring that specific thing to Jesus now. And Jesus, we ask you, these things are too heavy for us to carry on our own. These things are too heavy for us to carry on our own. We hate them. Your spirit has begun to set us free already. You have promised to set us free entirely and we can see the promised land. We want to walk in 100% total freedom and purity and love. 
but we actually need you to do the work. We've got to struggle for it, but we need you to do the work. For those people that came in here this morning, Jesus, feeling like they just want to give up, just condemning themselves for how stupid they are and sinful and dumb and bad and not good enough, I pray that you would lift that cloud, Jesus, that every day they get up and they push on in order to please you is an act of worship. There's reward for that. Holy Spirit, I just pray for a hope, a supernatural hope to begin to well up, a a well that never runs dry, a river of living water to begin to spring up inside of us, of hope for the future, our future hope in what you're going to do for us, and our present hope that everything we do for you is worship even when we fall. Thank you for your love. And Jesus, as we push into you, I thank you that you will also knock down bondages and strongholds and set us free. Sometimes we won't even recognize it. We're just pushing so hard and also the next thing we know, oh, that thing's gone. That thing's changed. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.